Good evening and welcome to our Sydney Opera House talk with David Suzuki. I'm Anne Mossop from the Sydney Opera House and I'm delighted to welcome so many of you out here on a wet Sunday night. It's a tribute both to David and the urgency of the issue that he's going to be discussing that you're all here. At Sydney Opera House, we've been proud to release our first ever environmental sustainability plan this year, um, which includes uh, three objectives, reducing our own footprint through reducing energy use, embedding environmental sustainability in everything we do, but more importantly tonight, using the unique position that we occupy to engage and inspire others. And I'm absolutely thrilled that David is here with us to help us um, go a long way to doing that. This This evening, we're going to be hearing from David Suzuki, and we'll also have the pleasure of having David speak in conversation with Tim Flannery. And you'll also be seeing a short excerpt of a documentary, uh, Force of Nature, that David has been involved in. So it's my pleasure to introduce Tim Flannery, who will introduce David. Uh, Tim, <laughs> the chain of, you know. <laughs> Um, I did make them come onto the stage because you, if you, with me because if you come on without them, it's too disappointing for the audience. <laughs> Tim is someone who I'm sure needs little introduction to an audience like you, uh, someone like David who is a scientist but also somebody who has really made his life's work communicating about science and engaging us in the difficult environmental challenges we face. He's currently a professor at Macquarie University but notably as a communicator, as the author of books like The Future Eaters, The Weathermakers, and most recently, a very recent book, Here on Earth. So he's the perfect person uh, to be here and to be in conversation with David. So it's my pleasure to hand over to Tim Flannery. Well, David, you know, you've been with so many of us for so very long that you're an incredibly hard man to introduce. Um, through radio, television, books, many, many visits to Australia, you've been uh, a mentor, a leader, a hero to a huge number of Australians. And perhaps the best introduction I can give really is to just, I was thinking back before I came on stage about the first time that I heard you and it was on ABC radio. You were talking about biodiversity and the crisis that faces biodiversity. And you presented such a detailed and deep picture of the problem um, and, and, and drew out of that the essence, the essence of the issue. And it was a moral essence that you drew out of that, that, that deep discussion. And it's always stuck with me. You know, that, that ability of yours doesn't come just from your science background, um, your, your PhD in zoology and all of the, the research you've done in that area. It comes from a deep and abiding love, I think, um, of this planet and its people. And I think that's why you filled the Opera House tonight. That's a really tough thing to do on a rainy Sunday evening, you know. But, uh, and perhaps only you could do it. You've had so many awards, so much, um, you know, so many accolades, but I think the one that people here may not know about is that last year you were the recipient of the, the Right Livelihood Award. It really is the alternative Nobel Prize for environment. There is no higher accolade um, for environmentalists. And 
I think never was a, an award more richly deserved. Before I um, ask the audience to greet you, we have a, a documentary here, uh, I understand it's just been released in Canada, called Force of Nature. There's a trailer, a two-minute trailer uh, for it, which we'll play now. Um, and at the end of that, let's give David Suzuki the welcome that he really deserves. It kind of feels like kind of a wrap of what I've been doing. It really is a nice completion. I can just go home and die now. <laughs> we fail to ask the important questions. How much is enough? Are there no limits? One species, us, is single-handedly altering the planet. We have become a force of nature. There's no environment out there and we are here. We are the environment. Let me introduce myself. My name is David Takayoshi Suzuki. The repercussions of Pearl Harbor were the defining events in my life. For my dad and mother, it must have been an absolutely brutal time. Just seeing this, they were really Japanese. I was young, I was very ambitious. He was full of passion. I wanted to publish the paper that people would read and go, wow. Well, I never realized this was going to be such a big deal. <laughs> Today, we can begin to look ahead and imagine a new way of living in harmony and balance. However many years I have left, each year will be a gift. That was a commercial for a film uh, just released in theatres across Canada and I hope uh, soon in Australia. Thank you very much for coming out on a very Vancouver-like night. I'm delighted to see uh, the seats filled and, and thank you so much, Tim. Tim is one of my great heroes who I met here uh, many years ago and have followed his career with great, great interest. He's been, a, I think, one of your most influential people around the world. So I'm, I'm honored to be introduced by, by Tim. In many universities, there's a tradition where an esteemed or an eminent professor at the end of her or his career is asked to deliver a summation, uh, the last lecture of their career, to summarize a lifetime of academic uh, thought and experience. I taught at the University of British Columbia for 39 years and no one ever asked me to give one of those last lectures. <laughs> but when, um, when I was approached with the idea of doing a feature film, it was decided that uh, I would give a last speech, a last lecture to be part of the uh, film. So in December of last year, 
that's, uh, that's what I did. I'm going to be 75 in four more months, and when you get to be my age, there's no denying you're old. I uh, keep saying that I'm now in what I call the death zone. Now, there's, there's nothing morbid about that. I'm sorry to break it to you, but I'm afraid every one of you is going to die too. Some of us are just going to get there a little sooner. But I feel a special urgency now that I'm an elder because I think it's the most important part of my life. You see, as elders, we have a responsibility, it seems to me, to sift through a lifetime of experiences, of thought, of observation, to think about what kind of a, a legacy can be distilled to pass on. A few months ago in Canada, a reporter asked me, well, what do you hope people say about you after you're gone? And I was stunned. And I looked at him and I said, after I'm dead, I don't give a shit what anybody says about me. I'm going to be dead. <laughs> but it would be nice if a few ideas that I have would continue to resonate uh, among people. So while I'm still kicking, I can offer a gift a gift without any hidden agenda of a desire for celebrity, for, for uh, money or power. I can speak the truth that comes from my heart. I hope in speaking to you this evening it will prompt all of you, even the young ones that are here, to reflect on your own life, to ask the important questions. What's life all about? What matters most to me? What brings me joy and happiness? What do I hope my legacy will be at the end of my life? I spent 30 years as a geneticist, and I have been astounded at the development of techniques for manipulation of DNA, the genetic material. In 2001, scientists announced an astounding achievement, the complete sequence of all three billion letters in the DNA of a human cell. And the most amazing insight that came from the Human Genome Project to me was the recognition that 99% of the genes in our cells are identical to the genes in chimpanzees. They are our nearest relatives. Every one of us carries tens of thousands of genes identical to the genes in our pet dogs and cats, identical to the genes in eagles, salmon, fruit flies, dandelions, and cedar trees. All of life is our biological kin. We are all related through a shared evolutionary history. And surely if the rest of creation is our biological relatives, we treat them with greater respect and care than if we simply regard them as resources, as pests, as weeds, or vermin. And in an act of incredible generosity, the web of living things who are our relatives cleanse, create, and replenish the most fundamental things that we need to survive and flourish. It was plants that created the oxygen-rich atmosphere that animals like us depend upon. Before photosynthesis on this planet, the atmosphere was toxic to us because there was no oxygen in it. Oxygen is a very reactive element. If it came into the atmosphere, it would immediately react and be removed from the air. It was plants, 
over millions of years that took carbon dioxide out of the air and put oxygen back into and to this day we depend on plants to do that for us. Life is a critical part of the hydrologic cycle. The first science lesson I remember from grade school was that water covers 70% of the earth, evaporates, forms clouds, runs into, falls on the earth, runs into rivers and lakes, evaporates. And life is a critical part of that hydrologic process. I believe Vancouver has the best water on the planet. Why? Because we get all of our water from three watersheds surrounded by old growth rainforest. And when that rain falls on the soil, the tree roots and the other plant roots and the soil fungi and bacteria filter the water so that we can drink it. Life is every bit of our food for our nutrition and life creates the very soil on which we grow our agricultural food. And all of the energy in our bodies and all of the energy in our fuel from dung to wood to peat to coal, oil and gas, all of that energy is sunlight captured by plants through photosynthesis. So the point I'm trying to make is that the web of living things who are our relatives give to us the most fundamental needs that we as animals have to have to stay alive and healthy. We constantly boast that we are intelligent. Oh, we're a clever animal. But what intelligent creature, knowing the critical role that air, water, soil, photosynthesis, and biodiversity play in keeping us alive and healthy, would then proceed to deliberately and so thoughtlessly pour our toxic wastes into them to destroy ecosystems and habitat and drive species to extinction as if it's our God-given right and that somehow it is not going to end up affecting us. Scientists use DNA to trace the movement of our species across the planet over time. Very, very clever, exquisite experiments. And what they show is that all of the trails lead back to Africa 150,000 years ago. I can't wait to be invited by the Ku Klux Klan to give a lecture to them and I'm going to tell those pointy-headed characters we're all Africans because that's where we were born. <laughs> Try to imagine what the world was like when our species was born. There were still woolly mammoths on the planet, saber-toothed tigers, giant sloths and moa birds. The world was a very different place. If we were to take a time machine and travel backwards, park above the Rift Valley 150,000 years ago, we would see animals in variety and abundance beyond anything you could see in the Serengeti today. We'd have to look very, very carefully to spot those clusters of three, four, or five of those funny-looking two-legged furless apes. And that was us. Now you've got to admit, looking at it in that context, we weren't very impressive. I mean, there weren't very many of us, we weren't very big, we weren't very fast, an elephant can outrun the fastest human on earth. We weren't very strong, a chimpanzee weighing 100 pounds could whip my ass, probably most of you in this room. And we sure as heck weren't endowed with any special senses of vision or hearing or smell. I am absolutely sure 150,000 years ago, 
No other species looked at us, trembled and said, watch out for that naked ape, they're going to take over the planet. I mean, what did we have going for us? Well, of course, our secret was hidden. It was invisible from the outside. It was the two kilogram organ buried deep in our skulls. That human brain endowed us with a massive memory. No other mammal on earth has a memory capacity of a human brain. We were curious and we were inventive. And those qualities of curiosity, inventiveness and memory more than compensated for our lack of physical and sensory ability. That brain remembered from experience. It learned from observation and it invented ideas that it put into practice. That brain was aware of itself as no other creature is. Aware of itself in space and time. And we could dream of a world yet to come. A future in which we could avoid the dangers and exploit the opportunities. I believe foresight, that ability to look ahead, was our great leg up. By looking ahead we could imagine a future that we could then work in the present to try to achieve. In only 150 millennia we have occupied every continent and rocketed into dominance on the planet. Consider our numbers. At the very beginning of the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago, it's estimated there were 10 million human beings on the entire planet. Agriculture heralded a new level state in our existence, a new stage. And in only 8,000 years, when Jesus Christ is thought to have been born, it's thought there were about a hundred million of us. So in only 8,000 years, our numbers increased by an order of magnitude. And then, in less than 2,000 years, we reached a billion people early in the 1800s. And from that point in less than 200 years to the present time, we rocketed up to reach a population of 6.9 billion human beings. We are now the most numerous mammalian species on the planet. There's a simple rule in biology that says that the numbers a species can achieve is inversely related to its physical size. In other words, the smaller you are, the more of you there can be. And that makes a lot of sense. The smaller you are, the less of everything that you need. So if you're a mouse, there can be tens of millions of you for a given species. But as you get bigger and bigger in size, the numbers of your population fall so that when you get to a whale or an elephant species, we're talking in terms of tens of thousands. Humans are now the most numerous mammal on the planet. And we're not a tiny creature. We have been able to achieve this through our intelligence, through technology and trade. And we, of course, just being so numerous, just the very act of living, staying alive. Every one of us has to breathe air, drink water, eat food, feed and clothe and shelter ourselves just to stay alive since there are 6.9 billion of us we have a very heavy ecological footprint. It takes a lot of air, water and land just to keep us alive. But of course we're not like mice or rats or rabbits or elephants or whales. We have an enormous amount of technology used on our behalf. 
Just look around you. Look at everyone here is wearing clothes. I don't, I'll bet you nobody in this room is growing a big cotton field in your backyard or a flock of sheep. And yet we're wearing wool and cotton clothes. All of that is created for us and delivered to us by technology. So on our behalf, huge amounts of land and air and water are used to deliver us our clothing. And then you think of our food and, and look at our homes and workplaces, televisions, computers, cars. All of that is delivered to us on our behalf that enables us to live as we do today. And that amplifies our ecological footprint beyond any other species that has ever existed on this planet. And it doesn't end there. Ever since the end of World War II, we've been afflicted with an incredible appetite for stuff. We love to shop. We love to buy stuff and all of that stuff comes out of the earth and our emissions to produce those products are released into the, the biosphere and when we're finished with those things we throw them back into the earth. And our consumptive appetite elevates again our ecological footprint. And we have a global economy that exploits the entire planet as a source of raw materials and the entire biosphere as a dumping ground for its toxic effects. But that global economy hides, makes invisible, the ecological and social costs of the things that we use in our daily life. I am sure very few of you, when you go into a store to buy a cotton shirt, ask first, is this organic or not? Cotton is one of our most chemically intensive crops. You just have to look at the Soviet Union's attempt, while well, a successful attempt, to make the, the, the Eurasian area the biggest cotton-producing area in the world. And when you look at countries like Tajikistan and Uzbekistan around the Aral Sea, it is an ecological and a social disaster because of cotton. And yet we just want to pay our money, get a shirt, put it on, and uh, never think another thing about it. And then you think of our television sets and our computers and cars. There are a lot of metals in these products. Mining is one of our most destructive activities. Before we buy a car, do we say, gee, where did all the metals in this car come from? What was the effect of the mining on, on the local ecosystems? What was the effect on the miners? Are they getting a decent wage? What about the communities that depend on mining? We don't ask those questions. We just want to pay the money and get a product that we can use. And yet the act of buying things has reverberations, social and ecological rever reverberations that ripple around the world. When you add all of this up, our numbers, our population, our technology, our consumptive habits, and our global economy, we have become a force as has never existed on this planet. A geological force. We are altering the chemical, physical, and biological features of the planet on a geological scale. Only a few decades ago, we referred to hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, drought, and forest fires as natural disasters or acts of God. But they aren't anymore. Human beings have become a discernible part of these events. We are now taking our place among the gods in terms of our powers without a god's knowledge to be able to manage the impact of what we are doing. 
Scientists, you know, divide the Earth's history into different epochs, epochs that are defined by various geological events. And the Nobel Prize winner Paul Crutzen says, we should be calling this present period the Anthropocene Epoch, an epoch when humanity has become a geological force. But now, when scientists and supercomputers acting in the best tradition of our species, calling their, recalling their knowledge, applying it and to models and looking ahead, when scientists are telling us we're going down a very dangerous path, that we have to change directions, we are turning our backs on the very strategy that got us to where we are. We've got to look ahead, see the dangers and see the opportunities, and then act in a way that will get us to a safer future. That's what we've always done. But now we're not doing it. We have excuses that allow us to deny the reality of what they're saying. And I think in order to come to grips with how powerful we've become and how important it is to act, we have to be able to see the world and our place in it with absolute clarity. And here I think is where there's a tremendous problem. It's very difficult to see the world properly. You see, all of us have the same, we're all a single species. We have the same sense organs, the same neurons to transmit information, the same brain, but the way we see the world is shaped by gender, by, by ethnicity, by religion, by socioeconomic position. All kinds of things shape the way that we look out and see the world. That may seem like a, a really weird thing to say. But a few years ago, I went to Peru and visited a small village on the side of a mountain. And I learned that the children there are taught that that mountain is an apu. Apu in their language means a god. And as long as that apu casts its shadow on their village, it will determine the fate of everybody in that village. And I thought, can you imagine how those kids, when they grow up, will treat that mountain compared to a kid who grows up in the Kimberleys, taught all his life, I'll bet those mountains are full of gold and silver. The way we see the world shapes the way we treat it. In the 1990s, I was asked by Chief Ruby Dunstan of the Lytton Indian Band if I would help, no, it was in the 1980s, to, if I would help her uh, prevent any logging from going into their sacred valley. The uh, British Columbia government had given uh, Fletcher Challenge, a New Zealand forest company, a permit to log the sacred valley of the Lytton people. And she asked if I would join with them to, to uh, prevent that happening, and I agreed. And she flew me in a helicopter up the valley to show me what they were fighting to protect. And as we flew up the valley, she pointed out the sacred burial sites along the cliffs above the Stein River. She showed me where the great bushes were that grizzly bears and people gather their berries in the summer. She showed me the spawning beds of the salmon and a site where 200 years before her people had fought a neighboring tribe. And when we landed, the helicopter pilot got out and shook his head. He said, you're not going to believe this, but last week I flew a group of, of foresters and politicians up the same valley. I took the same route as we went. 
went on, and all they talked about were volumes of wood, jobs, and profit. Two groups of people looking down at exactly the same forest and seeing radically different things. Is a forest a sacred grove or just timber and pulp? Is a river the veins of the land or an opportunity for irrigation and power? Is another species our biological kin or just a resource or commodity? Is our property a home or just a piece of real estate? The way we look out at the world is shaped by the values and beliefs in our brains that filter the information coming into that brain. For most of human history, we were local tribal animals. We were concerned about our tribal people and our, our tribal territory. We didn't have to worry whether there were even any people on the other side of an ocean, over a mountain or across a desert. We just had to worry about our own territory. Even in 1900, when there were only one and a half billion human beings in the world, there were only 16 cities with more than a million people. London was the largest city in the world with six and a half million people. Tokyo was the seventh largest city in the world with one and a half million people. The vast majority of people around the world lived in rural village communities because most of humankind was involved in some aspect of agriculture. We were farming, a farming species. And farmers know very well we are absolutely dependent on weather and climate. In Canada, farmers know that the amount of moisture in the soil in the summer is directly related to the amount of snow that we get in the winter. Farmers know that we need insects to pollinate flowering plants. They understand that certain species of plants can take nitrogen out of the air, fix it as fertilizer in the soil. Farmers, I believe, know that we are still deeply embedded in and dependent on nature. And that's the way it's been for humanity since the beginning of time. But something fundamentally different has happened in the last hundred years. By the year 2000, there were now four times as many people in the world, six billion people. But there were more than 400 cities with more than a million people. Now, by the year 2000, uh, Tokyo was the largest city in the world with 26 million people. The 10 largest cities on the planet all had more than 11 million people. And in countries like Australia and Canada, more than 85% of us now live in big cities. So in only 100 years, we've been changed from a farming animal to a big city dweller. And in a big city, it's easy to think we're different from other creatures. We're so smart, we create our own habitat. And as long as we have parks out there where we can go camping and playing in, we don't need nature. We have somehow escaped the boundaries of nature. I have a good friend in Toronto, the biggest city in Canada, who lives in the, in the suburbs in a high-rise apartment, completely air-conditioned. He goes down in the morning, he goes down the elevator to the basement, gets into his air-conditioned car, drives down the freeway into the center of town, into the basement and up the elevator to his air-conditioned office. 
His office building is connected by a huge series of tunnels to large shopping centers and food marts. He told me he doesn't have to go outside for weeks on end. Who needs nature in a city? And so in a city, our priority shifts because we see ourselves as existing in a different kind of world. Our preoccupation in a city is with our jobs because you need a job to earn the money to buy the things that you want. So we forget first and foremost that we are biological creatures. I gave a lecture in Austin, Texas a few years ago and there were a number of children in the front and I said, now kids, if you remember one thing from my lecture, please remember we are animals. Man, did their parents get pissed off at me. Don't call my daughter an animal. We're human beings. I mean, you can see our attitude towards other creatures. If you call someone a chicken or a pig or an ape or a snake, we're insulting them because somehow we think we're not like them. We're superior to them. I saw a store in Calgary a few years ago, big sign on the front, no animals allowed. I went and told the owner of the store, I said, you enforce that, you're not going to have customers. <laughs> he didn't know what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> we are animals. And as animals, our most fundamental needs are dictated to us by our biological makeup. When every one of you left your mother's body, the very first thing you needed was a breath of air. That breath was to inflate our lungs and then announced to the world that we had arrived. And from that point on, you needed air. We need air till the last breath we take before we die. We don't even think about it. Now I want you for the next two minutes just to think about what it is to take a breath of air. It's so, that's it. Two to three liters of air deep down into the most intimate, moist, warm parts of our bodies, our lungs. And if you've ever seen an animal freshly killed and looked at the lungs, you know, if you touch them, they're that kind of squishy, mushy feeling because the lungs have a different quality because they're mainly air. Every one of us, on average, has about 300 million capsules or alveoli in our lungs, and they're clustered like grapes around an alveolar duct. We need 300 million of them to give the surface area to come into contact with the air. If you flattened out our lungs in two dimensions, they would cover a tennis court. That's how much surface area is all wrinkled up in our lungs. And each alveolus is lined with a three-layered membrane called a surfactant. The surfactant reduces surface tension, so when the air hits it, it sticks or fuses to the surfactant. Immediately, carbon dioxide rushes out. Oxygen and whatever else is in that air rushes into our bodies. Hemoglobin molecules and red blood cells grab onto the oxygen and each beat of our heart will drive that oxygen to every part of our bodies. And when we breathe out, we don't breathe all of the air in our lungs out. If you did that, our lungs would collapse. About half of the air stays in your lungs even when you exhale. So the point I'm trying to make is that you can't draw a line and say air ends here and I begin there. There is no line. It's in us, it's stuck to us, and it's circulating through our bodies. You and I are air. There's no distinction. We are air, and if I am air and you are air, I am you. 
And we are embedded with each other, not all, only all human beings. We are in this thin matrix of air, linked to the trees and the birds and the worms and the snakes that are all using that same thin layer of air. We are air. We, uh, there's, a wonderful, there's a wonderful thought exercise the American astronomer Harlow Shapley performed many years ago. He said, what happens to a single breath of air? How do you follow a breath of air? You breathe it in, 98% of it is oxygen and nitrogen. Oxygen and nitrogen go into our bodies. A lot of the oxygen never comes back out. That's why we need air every minute of our lives. But 80% of the air is nitrogen. It goes into our bodies. Some of it reacts biochemically and doesn't come back out. But 1% of the air is an element called argon. Argon is an inert gas. It doesn't react chemically with anything. So you breathe it in, goes into our bodies, breathe it out, comes right back out. So argon is a good, what scientists call, marker for a breath of air. 1% of the air is argon. How many atoms of argon in a breath of air? Shapley calculates 3 times 10 followed by 18 zeros. That's 3 billion billion atoms of argon. Take it from me, that's a lot of argon. So if we were to follow one breath of air that comes out of Tim's nose, within minutes that breath will have circulated through here by convection currents and every one of us will be breathing gazillions of argon atoms from that one original breath a few minutes early, earlier. But of course the doors will open and gradually that single breath will diffuse out of the room across Sydney, across Australia. And according to Shapley, one year later, doesn't matter where you are in the world because air is a single system, every breath you take will have about 15 argon atoms from Tim's breath a year before. So on that basis, Shapley calculates every breath you take will have millions of argon atoms that were in the bodies of Joan of Arc and Jesus Christ. That every breath you take will have millions of argon atoms that were in the bodies of dinosaurs 65 million years ago. That every breath you take will suffuse life forms as far as we can see into the future. Air surely should be thought of as a sacred substance, giving life to all terrestrial life forms, connecting us to the past, from the past and on into the future. We say we are intelligent. What intelligent creature, knowing the role that air plays, would proceed to use air as a toxic dump? We are air. Whatever we do to the air, we do directly to ourselves. So we, as an environmentalist, I know for years we framed the problem the wrong way. There's no environment out there and we are here and we have to regulate our interaction with it. We are the environment. We are the air. And whatever we do to the air, we do directly to ourselves. Would you deliberately dump toxic chemicals into the lungs of your infants? Of course not. And yet we do it to the air and we are air. We are water. Every one of us is at least 60% water by weight. We're all basically a big blob of water with enough thickener added we don't dribble away on the floor. <laughs> and of course, our bodies leak water. It comes out of our skin and our eyes and our nose and our crotch and we're losing water all the time. When I take a drink of water, do you think this is Sydney water? 
The hydrologic cycle says water cartwheels around the planet. Any drink you take will have molecules that have come from all of the oceans of the world, has evaporated off the canopies of every forest on the planet. We are water. Whatever we do to the water, we do to ourselves. And we are earth because every bit of our food that we eat to make up our bodies was once alive. And the bulk of it was plants grown in the soil. We are the earth through the plants that feed our bodies. And we are fire because all of the energy in our bodies that we need to move and grow and reproduce, all of that is sunlight. Sunlight captured by plants through photosynthesis and converted into chemical energy, we then eat the plants or eat the animals that eat the plants and capture that energy which we store in our bodies. And when we need that energy to move, we burn those molecules and release the sunlight back into our bodies. So Aboriginal people have told us for years that the earth is our mother. And that's not metaphoric or poetic. They mean it literally. The earth is our mother because we are created out of the four sacred elements. Earth, air, fire, and water. And we forget that those are our most fundamental needs that we should value and treasure and protect above everything else. So where does that take us? Economics and ecology come from the same root word, ekos, the Greek word meaning household or domain. Ecology is the study of home. Economics is the management of home. What ecologists try to do is determine what are the principles and the conditions that enable a species, any species, to survive and flourish. Not a bad bit of information if you ask me. Now I would have thought any group within an, a species that claims to be intelligent before it carries out any new program, whether it's a government corporation or group, would say, wait a minute now. What was, let's remind ourselves, what are those principles and conditions? Because whatever we do, we don't want to violate those conditions and principles. They're what keep us alive. But we elevate the economy above ecology. In Canada for four years, we've got the last of the three amigos, George Bush, John Howard, and Stephen Harper. Two are gone, but we're stuck with the last one. And he's still trying to carry on in the tradition. He tells us, we can't do anything about climate change. It'll destroy the economy. So the Prime Minister of Canada has elevated the economy above ecology. We better put the eco back into economics. We have a, we, well, we had a Minister of the Environment in the oil province of Canada, comparable to Texas, Alberta. And uh, the minister said, these environmentalists better understand we can't afford to do the things they're asking us to do if the economy isn't strong and growing. So even the Minister of the Environment, whose job is to protect the environment, thinks that the economy is the source of everything that we need and that as long as the economy is doing well, then we can afford to do everything else. I'm told by business people and politicians over and over again, listen Suzuki, you've got to be realistic. The economy is a bottom line. 
That's why this uh, past summer in Canada I did a 10-part series called The Bottom Line. As a scientist, I know there's a fundamentally different bottom line. And we'd better find out about that bottom line pretty quickly. You see, we live in a world that is shaped by principles and concepts in physics, chemistry, and biology that come before anything else. The first and second laws of thermodynamics and physics tell us that we cannot build a perpetual motion machine. The law of gravity says you can't have an anti-gravity machine here on Earth. The laws of the speed of light tells us that we can't build a rocket that will travel faster than the speed of light. These are forces of nature that physicists tell us we have to live with. And anybody accepts the reality of those facts. In chemistry there are simple laws that determine the kind of chemical reactions that go on, how rapidly they can go on, which chemicals can react. We know that laws of diffusion constants and reaction rates dictate what we can do in the area of chemistry. And in biology we know that we as animals have an absolute requirement for clean air, clean water, clean soil and clean energy if we are to survive and remain healthy. Those things you can't change. They're laws that emerge from the world of physics, chemistry, and biology. Other things, capitalism, free enterprise, corporations, currency, markets, the economy, are not forces of nature. We invented them. And if they're not working, those at least we can change. You can't change the laws of physics, chemistry, or biology, but you can sure as hell change these things. We, um, in 2008, we had an unbelievable opportunity. We had an economic meltdown. Yeah, I know, you know Australia went through it really well because you had such a great government and all that stuff. <laughs> but believe me, believe me, the rest of the world had a, a moment. That moment of crisis was an enormous moment of opportunity. That kind of crisis says we had to sit back and say we keep going for, to the dot-com boom and the bust and then the housing boom and the bust. There's something wrong. We can't just keep going like that. We got to do it a different way. So it was an opportunity that emerged from the crisis. But what did we do? Mr. Bush and then Mr. Obama began to pour hundreds of billions of dollars back into the very banks that created the problem, into the auto sector that created all kinds of problems with no strings attached. All they said was, please, please, please get back up and running and growing. Einstein said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different result. But we have sanctified the economy. We have sanctified the marketplace. Boy, oh boy, just, I was just listening to ABC radio today. And you get these guys talking and the minute you say the market, it's like, oh, the market, hallelujah, the market, free the market and that everything will be fine. What a bunch of nonsense for God. We invented it. The idea that the market should be freed of any constraint and it's going to take. That is the most ridiculous idea I have ever heard. You know, only a... Only, 
Only a few hundred years ago, people believed in dragons and demons and monsters, and we really believed in them. I mean, we'd give them gold and jewels. We'd do anything to get them off our backs. Well, now we know that they're just figments of our imagination. They're not real. Nobody believes in those things today. But what do we do? We replace them with another figment of our imagination called the economy. This is just crazy. And believe me, if we think the economy's in trouble, Mr. Bush and Obama showed you, we'll pay money like mad just to get them off our backs. This is, this is a human construct that we can change if it's not working. We, we compound the problem by elevating other constructs above nature. We draw lines around our property, around our cities, around our states, around our countries. And by God, do we take those borders seriously. You'll go to war, kill and, and die protecting those boundaries. But guess what? Nature doesn't give a hoot about our boundaries. I was in Alberta a few months ago and I said, you know, you're, gonna, you're developing the dirtiest oil on the planet and I don't give a damn what you do with that air as long as you keep it within your province. You take care of that air and you can do whatever you want. But of course, it's not possible. Air doesn't care about human borders. Water doesn't care about human boundaries. We have winds that blow off Africa, blow seeds and dust all the way over to North America. That, those seeds and dust don't stop at the border and say, gee, I didn't bring a visa, I can't get into the United States. Then you think about the, all the mammals and the birds and the insects and the fish that migrate through territories without a regard to whether they're human boundaries or not. But look at the consequence of our sanctifying our borders and our economies. 192 nations gathered in Copenhagen last December trying to negotiate something that belongs to no one through the lenses of 192 national borders and 192 economic priorities. You think for a minute an event like Copenhagen or Kyoto before that could ever succeed? Of course not, because we've elevated human economies, human constructs above the very things that keep us alive that pay no attention to what we invent or not. These are doomed to fail because we think that we're so hot and so important and so smart that we're going to negotiate through our national and economic borders. An economy is made possible by the biosphere. We dilute away our toxic effluence in that biosphere, the zone of air, water, and land where all life exists. We, uh, when we're finished with our products, we dump them back into the biosphere as waste. Yet the economic system ignores or downplays the cost or discounts the many services that nature performs to keep the planet healthy for an animal like us. I once had a confrontation with the CEO of uh, a major forestry company and uh, it was a rather contentious discussion and finally uh, he was so mad at me he said, listen Suzuki, are tree huggers like you willing to pay to protect those trees? Because if you're not willing to pay money to protect those trees, they don't have any value till someone cuts them down. And that for me was an epiphany because I realized he was absolutely right. In our economic system, 
Unless money changes hands for some transaction, then th there is no economic value. That forest that we were arguing over is taking carbon dioxide out of the air and putting oxygen back in it. Not a bad service for an animal like us. If we don't have that service, we're dead. But our economists are so smart, they call that an externality. It's not in the economic equation. You've got to wonder, where, which planet is this economy for? Because it sure as hell isn't the planet that I inhabit. But economists discount or externalize the, that service. That's why the screams that go on when you talk about a carbon tax, putting a price on carbon, we think, everyone thinks that should be free. That the atmosphere is there to use as we wish. Don't start internalizing those costs. Those trees are pumping millions of gallons of water out of the soil, transpiring it into the air and modulating weather and climate. It's an externality. That forest is supporting a community of birds, mammals, and insects that pollinate flowering plants all over the world. That's an externality. Those uh, tree roots are holding the soil so when it rains, the soil doesn't run into the spawning gravels of the salmon. An externality. The forest provides habitat for countless plants and animals. That's all an externality. So all of those services that forests carry out for us, that keep the planet healthy and abundant for an animal like us, are considered by economists of no value or consideration in this economic system. Well, that to me is a definition of lunacy, if you think that that economy makes any sense. And then we compound the problem of this flawed economic system that everybody bows down before without any demand for change. We then enshrine economic growth as our highest priority. What does growth do for you? Growth. Just growing. Growth does absolutely nothing for us. Growth is the description of the state of a system. Growth by itself is nothing. And the idea that growth has become the very definition of progress doesn't make any sense at all. Growth must be a means to some other end. But it must not, cannot be an end in itself because it doesn't do anything for us. Growth, you think about that. You ask any politician or any business person how well they did last year, and within seconds, they'll be talking about the growth in the economy, the GDP, and market share, and jobs or profit. Growth is the definition of how well economists or business people or politicians do. Growth has become synonymous with progress. Now, we all want progress. If growth is the definition of progress, we never ask the important questions. What the hell is an economy for? Are there no limits? How much is enough? Am I happier with all this stuff? We don't ask those questions. By God, if the Australian economy dips down to only 2% growth, we think we're in deep trouble. If it goes down to zero growth, my God, this is catastrophic. Because growth is the very reason governments and business exist. This is absolutely suicidal. You see, any organism, any entity that exists within a finite world cannot grow forever. Each of us is made up on average of about a hundred 
trillion cells. That's a one followed by 14 zeros. That is a lot of cells. And we lose cells all the time in our hair and we're sloughing cells off our skin and our blood cells are dying. All kinds of cells are dying all the time. So there has to be some division of cells. But if one cell out of a hundred trillion cells, you put down one and a hundred trillion with 14 zeros, that's trivial. It's nothing. But if one cell says, I'm going to just keep on dividing. There's no point my restricting myself. Before it reaches the size of very much, very great mass, if you don't get rid of it, it'll kill you. Cancer cells think they can grow forever and you know what the end result is. Any system that wants to grow forever in a finite world will result in the same thing, death. And yet economists, well, maybe they're not smart enough to know that our world is the biosphere, the zone of air, water, and land where all life exists. That's it. It's ca it can't grow. As Carl Sagan used to tell us, if you shrink the earth to the size of a basketball, the biosphere where 30 million species live would be thinner than a layer of varnish you paint onto that basketball. That's it. It can't grow. It's fixed. And yet economists think the economy can grow forever. And I'm going to show you why that is suicidal. And we've got to get rid of that as quickly as possible. Anything growing steadily over time, whether it's the, the amount of garbage you make, the amount of water you use, the, the size of your city, the number of people in the world, anything growing steadily over time is called exponential growth. And anything growing exponentially has a predictable doubling time. So if it's growing at 1% a year, it'll double in 70 years. 2% a year in 35 years, 3% in 24 years, 4% 17 and a half years. Anything growing steadily will have a predictable doubling time. I'm going to give you a system analogous to the planet, and that is a test tube full of food for bacteria. So the test tube and the food is the planet, and I'm going to drop one bacterial cell in, and the bacterium is us. And it's going to go into exponential growth. It's going to divide every minute. Okay? So at time zero, at the very beginning, there's one cell. One minute later, there are two. Two minutes, four. Three minutes, eight. Four minutes, 16. That's exponential growth. And at 60 minutes, the test tube is completely packed with bacteria, and there's no food left. So it's a 60-minute growth cycle for bacteria. When is the test tube only half full? Well, of course, the answer is at 59 minutes. 59 minutes, it's half full, but one minute later, it'll be completely filled. So at 58 minutes, it's 25% full. At 57 minutes, it's 12.5% full. At 55 minutes of a 60-minute cycle, it's 3% full. So if at 55 minutes, one of the bacteria says, guys, I've been thinking, we've got a population problem. <laughs> the other bacteria would say, Jack, what the hell have you been smoking, man? 97% of the test tube's empty, and we've been around for 55 minutes. And they'd be five minutes away from filling it. So bacteria are no smarter than people. At 59 minutes, they'd go, Oh my God, Jack was right. We got a population problem. What the hell are we going to do now? Well, uh, don't give that money, any money to those economists. Give it to those scientists. And in less than a minute, those bacterial scientists invent three test tubes full of food for bacteria. So they quadruple the amount of food in space. That would be like us discovering three more planet Earths where we could start using it right away. 
So they're saved. What happens? At 60 minutes, the first test tube's full. 61 minutes, the second test tube's full. At 62 minutes, all four are full. By quadrupling the amount of food and space, you buy two extra minutes. How do we add even a fraction of 1% more of air, water, soil, or biodiversity? You can't. It's fixed. You can't grow it. And every scientist I've talked to agrees with me. We're already past the 59th minute. Think about that. All of this discussion about we got to have more, we got to have more. You look at the way you're living in Sydney. Why do you have to have more? Why do you need any more economic growth? You need another iPhone 4 or iPhone 5 or iPad 2? What the hell's going on? What do we need all that growth for? Is it about sustaining our life, the quality of our life? Talk to anyone in this country who's lived here a life of an elder. I've been to the heart of the Amazon. I've been to the Serengeti and the Arctic. And when I seek out the eldest person in a community and say, what was it like here when you were a kid? The answer is chillingly similar. It used to be so different. There used to be trees as far as you could see. The air used to be black with birds at certain times of the year. The rivers used to be jammed with fish. Talk to anybody that's lived in Brisbane or Darwin or Perth or any of your cities. What it used to be like 80 or 90 years ago. Our elders are a living record of enormous changes that have happened in the span of a single life. Well, North Americans would say there's plenty more where that came from. The planet has been fully occupied and fully developed by 30 million species for hundreds of thousands of years. If we drive a plant or an animal out of existence where we live, do we think there's empty space for them to go over and occupy somewhere else? There isn't empty space. If they're not here, they're not anywhere. Well, Americans say that's the price of progress. I don't think it's progress to use up the rightful legacy of our children and grandchildren. All over the world, What's, what's truly frightening to me is that you don't have to talk to an elder. My children, our children are under 30. They remember when you used to be able to catch salmon right outside of Vancouver. They remember all kinds of creeks that used to be filled with fish that are all, all filled in now and supporting a housing uh, uh, development. Our, our younger and younger people remember. Tara and I first came to, to Australia in 1989. And when we dove on the barrier reef, we couldn't believe it. Four years ago, we dove again. And I was shocked at the change that's gone on, even in that short period of time. And when I see fishermen just pulling fish out of the oceans without regard to the fact there are fewer of them and they're getting smaller, I wonder what it's going to take. We know the planet's a mess. But the media tend to ignore that. You know, oh, when I got here uh, two weeks ago... All Australians were, were just delighted. The Australian dollar had reached parity with America's dollar. Oh, you guys are so fantastic. That's great. Huge headlines. You know, Aussie dollar so strong and all that. But around two weeks ago, there was an announcement that 20% of all plant species might be extinct by the middle of this century. In Canada, I don't know what kind of an announcement that made in, in Australia. But in Canada, it was buried on page 18 of our national newspaper, a little story like that. 
All these stories about how many mammalian species and bird species and freshwater fishes are going extinct. And yet, boy, anything economic gets banner headlines. And we ignore the reality. The oceans cover 70% of the planet. I grew up in the 1950s as a teenager. I remember my high school civics teacher saying, the oceans are filled with limitless protein. The fish, you can't, I mean, I felt it was my duty to catch as many as I could because there were too many of them, man. They're going to take over the planet. You know the, you know the oceans are a mess. There are islands of plastic in the Pacific Ocean bigger than the state of Texas. There are dead zones in every ocean on the planet. And they're growing in size, in number, and duration. We uh, heard the announcement from Canadian scientists a few years ago that at the rate of fishing, overfishing, and pollution, if we carry that on, there will not be a single merchantable species of fish left in the oceans by 2050. And now we know with the increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it's dissolving in the oceans as carbonic acid and acidifying the oceans with consequences we have no idea, except that it's terrifying to consider it. The 80% um, of the forests on land are gone. And again, if we carry on at the rate we're destroying today, there will be no large intact forest left on the planet in 20 years. We've used air, water, and soil to dump our toxic chemicals. I know what a great country Australia is, but I'm sorry, every one of you is filled with dozens of toxic chemicals and more than a pound of plastic dissolved in your bodies. And now we know, of course, that climate change is real. It's being caused by us, by our burning of fossil fuels, and it's very, very urgent that we address this issue within the next decade. So here we are, as a species, unbelievably clever. But without the humility to acknowledge that there are limits and that we don't know enough to manage the entire biosphere. I think at this point we have to ask the most important question. Well, what is life all about? We're all going to die. We're all going to die. And what do we think that life that we're going to live is all about? My great teacher, my hero and mentor was my father. In 1994, when he was 85, he was dying. He was completely prepared for it. I was amazed. He was totally unafraid. And I moved in to care for him the last month of his life, and that was one of the happiest times I spent with my father. We laughed and cried together. We pored over scrapbooks. At night, my wife would come with the children and show slides of, of trips that we'd taken together with my father. He was never a wealthy man. But he kept saying, David, I will die a rich man, again and again. In all the time that I lived with him that last month, he never once said to me, David, do you remember those fancy clothes I had in my closet? Do you remember that car I bought in 1987 or that house that we owned on Oxford Street? All he talked about were family, friends, and neighbors and the things that he did together with them. That was his wealth, and in those, he was truly a wealthy man. We've got off on some weird idea of what really the meaningful things in life are, uh, really are. In the 1990s, when, before Hong Kong reverted to China, I got a letter in, in the mail from a real estate agent 
Tara and I have uh, lived in this house. It's a beautiful spot in Vancouver on the ocean now for th over 35 years. And uh, we got this letter saying, Offshore money is pouring into Vancouver. Now is the time to sell your house and buy up. I'd never heard the expression buy up in, ref in reference to a, a house. That house is our home. I didn't know that you invest in property and then live in it for a while, then sell it and buy up. I thought you made it your home, the place where you want to live for the rest of your life. And it, I have to admit, I was very angry when I got this letter. So I said, okay, this guy wants to sell my home. If I'm going to put it on the market, what are the things in that home that make it so worthwhile to me? And the first thing I thought about was the fact that Tara's mother and father, when we bought that house, we built an apartment for them upstairs, and they moved in to live with us, and they've now lived with us for 35 years. All their lives, my children have had grandma and granddad upstairs, and I put that down as one of the highest values on that house. My... My father was a carpenter. When Tara and I first got married, he built a kitchen cabinet for our apartment. And when we bought this house, I tore that cabinet out and installed it in the kitchen. It didn't look like anything. It looked like hell in there. But every time we used that kitchen cupboard, I think of my father. And I put that down. I was building a fence along the waterside when my best friend came out from Toronto and stayed with us for a week. And he spent days carving a handle for the gate. And every time I use that gate, I think of my best friend, and I put that down. My father-in-law planted a clematis plant along the side of the gate. And when my mother died in 1984, we put my mom's ashes on that plant. And then my sister's, niece, uh, sister's daughter died unexpectedly, and we put Janice's ashes on that plant. And every year when the beautiful purple flowers emerge along that gate, I know that Janice and my mother are there. And I put that down. My children have dragged dead snakes and squirrels and, and birds off the street. They've got a little animal cemetery under our dogwood tree. And I put that down. And when I look at that list that I prepared for the real estate agent, I realize those are the things that made my property our home. And to us, those are priceless. And on the market, they are absolutely worthless. And I think of Aboriginal people around the world who see the earth as our mother and view rocks and rivers and forests and soil as sacred. How do you put a price on that? And that's the problem with evaluating everything in economic terms. Those things that matter most to us have no value within that economic system. Somehow we've got ourselves into thinking that our happiness depends on having more and more stuff. That everything's got to be bigger and newer. And that's what life is all about, and yet it's simply not true. So what then at this point is our challenge? First of all, we have to slow down. What the hell's the hurry? We're all going to die. All that rushing is only going to get you there to the end. And then I think we have to get to know each other and think about our children and grandchildren 
and what we are leaving them and then the most important thing we have to reimagine the future our great ability was the ability to imagine the future a future where we avoid dangers and exploit opportunities because once you imagine that future then you have a direction you know where you want to go and we can all work together to achieve that future imagine a world where we live work and play in the same area so we don't need a car because all the fun and action is going on right out there in the street imagine a world where every building and road capture sunlight and convert it to, into electricity where every roof captures water and grows food imagine our cities full of fruit and and orchards of fruit and nut trees and community gardens where we celebrate the seasons as the different plants become mature and we can consume them imagine extracting heat from the earth in the winter and putting that heat back into the earth in the summer imagine cancer and asthma rates plummeting because we no longer use air water and soil to dump our toxic chemicals imagine zero production of waste because our industries are designed to mimic nature where one organism's waste becomes another organism's opportunity imagine being able to drink the water out of any river or lake as i did when i was a boy in canada right now when you catch a fish you have to consult a book telling you what chemicals are in it and how much you can eat per week imagine a, a country where you could catch a fish and eat it and not worry about what was in it imagine an australia rich with forests that can be logged forever because you're doing it the right way imagine lighter than airships carrying massive payloads over long distances to isolated communities or carrying tourists in a delightful float across the land imagine an economy that's in balance with nature's productive capacity that incorporates nature's services i could go on and on giving you a list of things you can imagine but these are not pie in the sky ideas like carbon capture and storage these are actually actually being tried these are actually being tried right now in different ways in different parts of the world so let us dream of what is possible so then we can come together and put our efforts behind achieving that goal and then let us show what a magnificent species we are truly capable of being thank you Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love Sydney. <laughs> well, David, it's such a privilege and a pleasure having you here, I must say, and that was just the most wonderful oration. Thank you very, very much. You drew a lot on on your wonderful latest book, The Legacy, and uh I really just wanted to spend the time we have here with each other exploring a few other aspects of the book. Um, 
it's clear, David, that somehow at a really early age you saw something other people were missing. You saw this bigger picture of the environment, its importance and so forth. What do you think it was about your life? Uh, you know, I wasn't, I never broke new ground in terms of being the big thinker. I think the critical element of my life is that the first memory I have from childhood was going camping with my father. My father was an avid outdoorsman and all my life uh, we've been out in nature. He was an avid fisherman and he taught me to love fishing. And that to me was the critical element because being a fisher, a fisherman, you know, you know, I, I learned to capture grasshoppers in the morning when they're still cold. And I mean, you learn a lot of biology. And even though our, uh, we had this period when, even though my mother and father were born and raised in Canada, when World War II happened, we were shipped off to, to camps. We were shipped to the most isolated part of the Rocky Mountains, and there was no school for a year and a half. I was seven years old, and man, I just roamed the mountains gathering mushrooms for my mother and fishing and encountering bears. And, uh, to me, that's the critical thing. You can't fight to protect something if you don't love it. And what worries me now is in Canada, again in Australia, it may be different. I was shocked to find the average child today spends over six hours a day text messaging, watching television, or working on a computer. When I was a boy, in the daytime, my parents would say, get out of the house, go outside and play. You know, I'd say, Mom, it's raining. She said, I don't care, go outside. <laughs> you know, that's what we did. Now they, we don't do that. We keep yeah, them inside, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's a pervert lurking behind a bush or speeding cars or, or something. And I really think this is the, the great fear. If you don't love nature and you live in a city, very hard to take seriously the environmental problems. I guess, you know, you've outlined very clearly as well, David, this, the, the fact that we are in a race for sustainability and we are in the last moments of it. Um, what do you think the most encouraging things that you've seen recently are in terms of that? Well, there's a lot going on at the local level. You know, in the 1980s, a lot of us, including me, used to run around saying, think globally and act locally. And that, I think, was a big mistake because the minute any thoughtful person thinks globally, you go, oh my God, you know, it's just too big, I'm nothing. We feel disempowered by looking at that big picture. So Thomas Berry, I think, put it right. He said, we've got to think locally and act locally to be effective, have any chance of being effective globally. And at the local level, all kinds of things are going on. And I'm, you know, I'm really encouraged to see... Uh, to see cities, uh, there's a whole movement to make cities as green as possible. We've elected, thank goodness, a very green mayor and city council in Vancouver. He set a target of the greenest city in the world by 2020. And we're well on our way to achieving that. But I know that the minute we get to that point, there'll be other cities being more green and it's just going to just carry on. The lead building standards that green buildings, has just exploded in North America. And people, you know, organizations and universities, companies, are all competing to see who can get lead silver, lead gold, lead platinum. So these, these standards are, are coming in. Um, well, I mean, it's just uh, sustainability has be become the mantra. Of course, there's a huge amount of greenwashing going on. But I see a lot of action, huge explosion in community gardens. I think the whole movement around food is a very, very important one. The slow food movement, eating local, eating seasonal, eating organic. These are all a part of a, 
uh, seeing ourselves in a bigger picture. Yeah, I think it's fantastic you're seeing the, uh, I guess, uh, reasons for hope in that grassroots stuff oh. because that's what where, where enduring change comes from, yep. clearly. But we do have to live with our governments. We do have to live with these yes. national yeah. governments. I mean, this is the and thing. There are a lot of environmentalists now yeah. who have really said it's too late. We've passed yeah. too many tipping points. And, you know, I, I've just finished Requiem for a Species by Clive Hamilton. And it's a very, very heavy book because yeah. I didn't disagree with anything he's saying. Yeah. But he, the Requiem is for us. Yes. And Jim Lovelock is saying the same thing, that the planet has a temperature and we've gone past too many tipping points. My take on it is different. We, I, I'm a scientist, as are you, and, and you know that the curves are all relentlessly down. But I don't think anyone can say it's too late because we don't know enough. We don't know enough to say it's too late. And I think if we can back off, give nature some room, that we're, nature's got a lot of surprises still in store. Some of them are not going to be very pleasant. But let me just tell you a story that should give everyone a lift. The most prized species of salmon is the sockeye salmon. And in Canada, there are five species of salmon. And the largest run of sockeye salmon in the world is in the Fraser River in British Columbia. Traditionally, we like a, a run of about 20 to 30 million. And that's a good, solid run, although it's nothing like what the natives had before we came. But anyway, 20 to 30 million. Last year, we had just over one million salmon return. And quite frankly, I thought, that's it. They've had it. And the government set up a commission to look at what happened to the sockeye salmon. And we were mourning for the sockeye. This year, one year later, we got the biggest run in a hundred years. 35 million sockeye. Nobody has a clue what the hell is going on. <laughs> I don't believe for a minute that the sockeye salmon are out of the woods. I, th I still think. But that abundance and productivity just gave me hope that if we can give nature a chance, she will be far more generous than we deserve. Wow, that's fantastic, David. Thank you. I think... I, I think we've got time just for one more discussion. And I wanted to really take advantage of your repeated visits to Australia and, and the similarities between our countries because Canada and Australia, apart from the climate, are incredibly similar <laughs> to people. Yeah. <laughs> but um, do, do, what do you see when you come to this country over that long time period and where do you see us now in, in the big global picture? Do you think we're making progress or are we... Well, I just want to... Rem it's not a very uh, happy picture. I want your audience to realize in 1988, around the world, the environment was at the top of the agenda. I remember vividly coming here and meeting Roz Kelly, mm. who was your Minister of the Environment, a damn good Minister of the Environment. But all Ministers of the Environment were saying the right things. A guy ran for President of the United States in 1988, and he said, if you vote for me, I promise I will be an environmental president. That was, you know who it was? I, no, I couldn't say. George H.W. Bush. Really? Wow. He didn't have a green bone in his body, but he said it because the American public had demanded it of him. We, uh, Brian Mulroney was re-elected uh, Prime Minister of Canada. He appointed his brightest star to be Minister of the Environment, a man named Lucien Bouchard. I said to Lucien three months after he was appointed, what do you think is the most important issue facing us? And his answer was global warming. I said, how serious is it? He said, 
It threatens the survival of our species. We have to act now or we're in deep trouble. 1988. 1988, scientists meeting in Toronto at an atmosphere conference said, this global warming is happening, humans are contributing, and called for a 20% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in 15 years. Think if we had done it. We would be so far past the Kyoto target and well on our way to the deep emissions. Those scientists were acting in the best tradition of our species, looking ahead, telling us where the opportunities lay. Why didn't we do anything? Couple of things. One is politicians have to start things that will pay off before the next election. And in Australia, that's three years. Now, you just told me to get converted from our current electricity in Australia to completely renewable electricity is going to cost how many billion? About 37 billion a year for 10 years. 37 billion dollars. But in 10 years, all of your electricity would be completely renewable. What politician is going to go to you and say, vote for me so that in 10 years someone else is going to take credit for what I'm doing now? He's going to get a hammering because it doesn't pay off quickly enough. And the other thing that I think is evil is that after 1988, the, the fossil fuel industry led by Exxon began to spend tens of millions of dollars in a campaign of deception. There's a wonderful book by a, an academic named Naomi Oreskes called Merchants of Doubt. And she just said, where are these deniers, these skeptics, these websites that are saying climate change is junk science, that this is a natural, where are, where's the money coming from? And she just tracked it all down. And what's going on, I believe, is criminal. The deniers, the skeptics, are carrying out a crime against future generations. And the fossil fuel industry has known, we know that they have known through their own studies, it's real, burning fossil fuels is causing it, and in the name of profit, they have carried out a campaign that has basically led us to do nothing for over 20 years. It's criminal what's gone on. David, um, you talked earlier on about being in the death zone. Don't wander too far in just yet, <laughs> mate. We need you. Thank you so much for Thank being you. here this evening. Thank you.